Um, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, this is part two. Cyrus used for sovereign purposes. Oh, we may say Cyrus sovereignly used by God. Maybe that flows a little bit better, perhaps. Part two, um, several weeks ago, we walked all the way through 44, 24 through 45 to the end of the chapter. And this idea of being used for sovereign purposes is very important. Uh, for those of you that looked at the anchored thought that I sent out, there was one section when I talked about true diversity and how in society today we hear that word a great deal about being diverse. We are diverse company. Uh, we are diverse outlet. You see diverse advertisements. Um, you see diversity in education. You see our diversity in hiring practices. Um, you hear preachers um, who are talking about diversity uh, in their churches. And sometimes when they talk about diversity in churches, uh, it's in a way that we would say we absolutely disagree because they're talking about now diversity when it comes to the issues of LGBTQ plus and whatever else is going to be added um, before tomorrow. Uh, the idea that we want to be diverse even in that way to include these people in our flock. And I just heard two pastors recently as they talked about transgenderism and being uh, open to the transgender person. And I thought uh, these two people, I think, in my opinion, are wolves. So they surely don't understand their calling to be ministers of the gospel and to speak as God speaks. As they talked about, we need to be a people who can include the transgender community. And he contradicted himself. Both actually contradicted themselves. But especially one did, and I think I posted it, how in one sense this man was saying, he's trying to say the Bible is on his side, so he makes this statement that we need to understand that God is a God of love. And we would all agree with that. Would you say, do you agree with that? God is a God of love. And would you say that God's love extends to all sorts of people? You must say amen to that because you're here, right? <laughs> Indeed, that is the case, right? We all agree with that, do we not? So it extends to all sorts of people. And then he makes this statement, we need to understand that God made everyone who they are, and we must love them. And then he contradicts himself, because then he makes a statement, and he says, and if those people identify with, now that's entirely different, is it not? God making a person a man, and them identifying as a woman, and God making a, a woman, and then she identifying as a man is entirely different. He's abdicated his responsibilities as a minister of the gospel. He really has. He doesn't even realize it. Someone not tell him you just contradicted yourself when you made the statement that we have to accept them because God made them a certain way. And then you make the statement when they identify as. And I don't know when this spiritual, social, mental lunacy actually began, but we're on a path of spiritual destruction in our society. People don't understand their purpose in life. God has made you who you are, and I've noted that even in the anchored thoughts, you are created who you are for a reason, that in some ways that you might be a display of God's generous grace to all peoples who come from all tongues and all backgrounds. And the thing about, say, for instance, the transgender community, 
uh, my heart goes out to them because they're confused and they're hurting people and they're also sinful people as well. And to the homosexual community, um, overcome by their lust and, and a learned behavior and they're facing an eternal separation from God so your heart has to go out for them. And those that say they're in the queer community as well, uh, absolutely confused and, and full of lust and misunderstanding of their purpose in life and what God has create, created them to be. So your heart has to go out for them. If it doesn't, you're not understanding the Christian life. Because it's easy for us to deride people on social media. It's easy for us to send out a tweet and say, oh, this is horrible. Uh, people don't understand. I can't believe this. That's easy to do. But really what God has called us to do is this. Yes, make a stand, make a statement, but still have a heart for people and want them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is why these so-called preachers, when they abdicate their responsibilities to be a preacher who is going to singularly be dependent upon the word of God and speak with a sense of authority, then they have abdicated. And by abdicating, what they're doing is they're causing people in some measure to be separated from God because they're not giving truth. Paul made this statement. He said plainly, he says, I am free from the what? The blood of all men because I have not held back from preaching to you the full counsel of God, the gospel of God. I've spoken to you. I'm free of your blood. It's not on me. And so for us, when a, a preacher says to the homosexual or to the transgender person, or let's just take it out of that category, to the adulterer and to the fornicator and to the liar and to the thief and to the religiously lost as well, you can say, I'm free of your blood. I presented you the gospel. And you've decided otherwise. But what a horror it's going to be for some of these preachers. And I believe some, I believe some are simply naive. And they may actually know the Lord. And some, I think, are just wolves in sheep's clothing. And they will come into an eternity. And they will be those people of a Matthew 7. And they will say, Lord, did we not preach in your name? And did we not do in your name? Depart from me, you workers of what? What does it say? I not, what? He said, what did he say? I never knew you. Never knew me? I had a church of 1,500. You never knew me. I was incredibly popular on YouTube. You never knew me. I had an excellent uh, meet social media platform. You never knew me. I spoke in conferences and I did seminars. You never knew me. I was a New York Times bestseller. You never knew me? Yes, I never knew you. I never knew you. You've lived your heaven on this life. Now it's eternal separation. What a horror that is. See, we have a purpose in life. And what is that purpose? Is to live for the glory of God, are we not? That's why we're here. We need to understand that purpose. And what we need to understand is this. We can look at someone like a Cyrus and say, oh, Cyrus, we know him throughout history. And Cyrus, how he was used mightily by the Lord, but you have a purpose, a distinct purpose. I do believe this, and this is just an opinion, but I'll state it nonetheless, uh, that some of the preachers, that is, when we're on the other side of eternity, there will be preachers who will be recognized, and I would even say perhaps even in the millennial kingdom as well, there will be men over ten cities and five cities, and we'll say, I never purchased his book. I didn't know he was on YouTube. 
I didn't know he had an excellent channel. I've never heard of him. Who is this person? But he is a person who understood his purpose and he faithfully served the Lord, even in maybe some church of 150 people, maybe it's 75 people, maybe it's some missionary you've never read about. He was never a person that was written about the life of, you never heard the life of this person or the life of that person, but they understood their purpose and they served faithfully. And that's what you must do as well. We may never, you may never write that book. We may never look back in history and say we can give an account of your life. You may pass away into eternity and at your memorial service, there are 200 people there perhaps. A nation won't be mourning for you. But if you serve your purpose, that's all we call it to do. Do you agree with me? Serve your purpose. Cyrus had a purpose, and God used him sovereignly. And if we understand the sovereignty of God, then we understand that God is saying, for each one of you here today, I have a purpose for you, and you must fulfill it. Now, this is different than sort of pop preaching, pop culture preaching. And pop culture preaching is going to talk about, well, if you can just understand your purpose in life and you can go out there and you can sort of wrestle down the issues of life and cast them aside and you can fulfill all the potential that you're meant to fulfill. Well, there's truth to that statement, but in a more spiritual way. We can't discard that. Because I would say that... um, We should discard the issues of life. And that, to me, in my mind, is simply uh, the book of Hebrews that tells us that we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him, he says, despised the shame. He endured the suffering. And so what do we do? We, We rid ourselves of the sin and the issues that so easily entangle us, and we run with endurance this race that's in front of us. So we should run with that sense of purpose, trying to be the best that the Lord wants us to be, absolutely. But in one sense, some of these pop culture preachers want to tell you, well, serve your purpose, and it's always in the context of something that's very material. Do you ever notice that? that you'll be recognized. This is sort of Joel Osteenism that's out there. No, that's not what we're talking about. Paul would surely say that sometimes your purpose may mean suffering and heartache and pain and difficulty. It may mean that you're rejected because that was the example of Jesus Christ, was it not? And so for us, we need to understand something. Yes, we're going to look at some high events, if you will, and the life of Cyrus, and say, my, look at the things that he accomplished, but he only accomplished them because of the sovereign hand of God. That's what we need to understand, and rest in that. And see, a message like this, when you understand that God's sovereign purposes will be fulfilled because of his sovereign word that has gone forth, you should walk away thinking, I trust the Lord all the more. I trust you, God. How can I not trust you? Look at the details of how this person's life unfolded. Look at how the nations are nothing before you. Look at how you're the controller of all things. Why should I not trust you? And in the Christian life, this is where, and one says the rubber meets the road, does it not? The matter of what? Trust. To believe God. And when we come to faith and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're saved, 
but then we live a life of trusting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and the everyday and for the everyday issues of life. This is where the rubber meets the road. Will you trust him in the here and now? Will you say, God, I see your detail. God, I see your control. God, I see your power. I trust you. And I'm convinced right now that there are people in this room, you need to trust the Lord. Why do I say that? That's just life, isn't it? Can you really think that you can come here any given Sunday and say, I have no need to trust the Lord right now? Is there a Sunday where that's been true of you in your life? Has there been a Monday that's been true of your life? Has there been a Friday you woke up and thought, I have no reason to trust God? No, that doesn't happen, does it? Even in the minute details of life, you still have to trust the Lord, do you not? I, I woke up this morning quite, you know, early, and I tend to get up early on, on Sundays and start to think about the message, and, and should I rearrange anything or say things differently? And I had to trust the Lord. And these thoughts popped into my mind. And oh boy, <laughs> when these thoughts pop into your mind, then I go to my computer and I put things around and change them. And I'm thinking I'm running late. I'm going to miss elders prayer. What's happening? And that's why I came. Someone was saying, oh, you made it. I came in the back and hey, you can preach. That's all right. I told, I told Bill, just have a sermon in your pocket, right? Be ready in season and out of season. A simple way to trust the Lord. You know, my wife right now, she's away again. We're, this is sort of odd. I was telling the seminary students this in a chapel I preached recently, this different stage in life where we travel more and together because the kids are gone. And, and now she's traveling, and I'm thinking, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? But at the same sense, when she's gone, I'm like a workhorse because I don't have to be social at all. <laughs> I'm just at my desk studying and studying, and, and whatever I eat really doesn't matter a whole lot. And, um, and, and so there we go. So I start early in the morning. It's until late night, and right now she's away. She's in Colombia. And I thought, Colombia? Let mm, me mm. trust the Lord. <laughs> Amen? Because <laughs> they sell more than coffee there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I said, Columbia, <laughs> a beautiful ministry there. Yeah, you trust the Lord in these matters of life. And I have loved ones, and I've been, this has been on my heart so much, and I just keep saying it, and maybe I'll keep saying it until I don't know. Loved ones that don't know the Lord. And surely God will say to them, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. And some of them right now, if I can think of it, I, can, I see their faces. You say, well, they're good people. They're loving people. They, they take care of their family. They live a fairly moral life. But he will say, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. So then you have a purpose in life to live for the Lord because you're supposed to be a light in the midst of darkness. Are you going to live for your purpose in life? Are you going to live for your own purposes? Are you going to take on Joel Osteenism when you want your best life now? Well, this this not deride him too much. In one sense, I do want my best life in this life now. Amen. <laughs> Jesus Christ said, "You came, I came that you might have life and have it what mediocrity? No, averagely, <laughs> no, abundantly." 
I will live. I want to live an abundant life now, but it's not just this life. I'm living an abundant life now for to give praise and honor and glory to the God who has given me this life and to live. So I hope that others might have life. I want to live this life. See, God uses us sovereignly. We need to understand our sovereign purpose. You create it for a sovereign purpose. I want to give you a bit of a review from our last um, lesson. And there were six observations that we made. You, you remember, may remember several weeks ago I said it was a bit of an appetizer and we would go a little bit deeper on some of these thoughts later on. And there were six observations. One was, and um, oh, just not yet, quite yet. One was God's declarations guarantee success. That was number one. Because what do I mean by that? God's declarations, if you look at Isaiah um, and you see throughout the idea, whenever he said, makes a statement and God says, notice verse 24, 44, thus says the Lord. 45, 1, thus says the Lord. 45, 11, thus says the Lord. 14, thus says the Lord. 18, for thus says the Lord. So God is speaking. He makes a declaration. Therefore, we know that it will come about. There will be success. Number two was this. God's intervention will guarantee success. And if you were to notice throughout, we paid attention to the ideas that he says, I will go, verse two. I will, I will, I have come, I have given, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. And throughout, and it's not just in this uh, part of, portion of the scripture, but throughout, in, in large measure, Isaiah 40 to 48, God is the one who is going to bring about. It's his personal intervention. Also, number three was this, God's personal titles guarantee success. Because in this passage, we notice that God is Redeemer. God is Yahweh. God is Maker. God is the Holy One. God is Savior. God is Yahweh of hosts. He's the covenant God of the armies. So that guarantees success because we know full well that if God is for us, then no one can be what? And if God is against us, no one else can help us. <laughs> right? Be on the right side. Amen. <laughs> Number four, God's sovereign right guarantees success. What do we mean by God's sovereign right? And this will get into what we'll discuss a little bit later. God's sovereign right. He has the right over his creation. He refers to Cyrus as his shepherd. He says it was according, according to his desire. He's ref, he refers to Cyrus as his anointed. And in the end, he says that men may know. In the end, God moves sovereignly that men will know that he is the only true God. And then number five was this. God's ultimate design will guarantee success. Look at 45 verse 3. His ultimate design is what? It says... I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Know that I am the one. Verse 4, here is the reason. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. That's the purpose behind it. Notice verse 6. He says in verse 6, that men may know 
from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Amen. (laughs) And I want you to know that there is no other God. From the rising and the setting of the sun. And I caught a beautiful sunset two days ago and I posted it. It was just, it was like a volcanic explosion over the hills, and we had so many clouds, which actually adds character to the sky, does it now? Some people say to me, well, what do you think about this weather? I think it's great. It adds character. Ah, some people say, I want Southern California blue skies. I want it sometimes, but I don't really want it 300 days of the year. It added character to it, and you saw these rolls and rolls because of the clouds of color and sequences of color, if you will, and you look at it and you say to yourself, God is declaring that I am God. And what's sad about it is some people will see that same sunset and they won't recognize God. People have painted many beautiful sunsets over the history of time, but they don't recognize it coming from God's hand. And then number six was this, God's redemptive plan will guarantee success. Look at 45 verses 22 to 25. In the end, God has a redemptive plan. It will come about. It will succeed. Beginning with, he said it, therefore it will occur. 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. Pause there for a moment. Incredibly important. Incredibly important. Sworn by myself, not by you. Because you're terribly inconsistent. You're in the midst of covenant treachery right now. So I sworn by myself. Therefore, if I'm sworn by myself and it is not fulfilled, I am not who I claim to be. And we do that, right? If someone, uh, do you do promise to tell the truth and the whole truth? So help you, God, we say. We swear. We make a promise. But guess what? We do what to promises at times? We break them. Sometimes hurtfully so, and it is hurtful, but nonetheless, I mention it. I mean, there have been people that I've, I've stood there as an officiant, and I say, before God and men, do you do promise in sickness and in health, and plenty and in want, to you know, be committed for all the days of your life? And they both say, I do. And sometimes one person says, I don't. It's hurtful. But it's another reminder that God's word is true and only God's word is true. He says, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not, notice what it says, not turn back. I don't regret my words is what he's saying. And he says, I spoke it forth in righteousness, which says in one sense, it is flavored by um, my righteousness. It is a righteous word, and I won't turn it back because why? There's no need for it. Have you ever sent an email you regretted? Oh, my. <laughs> or, or, or a text message, and you, send, you hit that send button, and you think to yourself, ah, I really should have thought about that a little bit more. That's why I tend to read and reread and sometimes sit on it for a while. Or have someone else read it. What do you think about this? And I've had people say, hey, Pastor Carl, I'm about to send this letter to this church, and they'll send me the letter. What do you think about it? Ouch. No. Take this out. Take this out. No need to say that. 
Really rethink that again. Don't send that out. You will regret it. Because sometimes we send it out with ill motives. God is saying, I send forth, I speak, I swear by myself, my mouth opens and it's in righteousness. I won't turn it back because it is a holy and final word. And then he says that to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say to me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who angry at him will be put to shame. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Yeah, that's his redemptive purpose. So we're going to walk through some details of the life of Cyrus here in a bit. And you may say, well, what's the purpose of historical lessons? Well, the purpose of, in some measure, historical lesson is to realize that we serve the God of history, do we not? God is sovereign over every detail in life. And if we were to recount our lives and say, you remember that time I met that person, or I thought it was just by chance that I ran into this person, or I was educated here, or I had a relationship with this person, that is all God's sovereign hand unfolding. We can think about the times in which maybe we came to faith with someone and someone witnessed to us. Why was that person there at that time? Why was that person preaching that message at that time? That's God's sovereign plan that is unfolding. And I'm going to look at really the three breakdowns for this lesson. We're only going to look at two today. And number one is defining God's sovereignty. Um, It should be sovereign purposes. Defining God's sovereign purposes. And then it should be describing Cyrus's sovereign purpose and declaring God's sovereign application. We won't uh, get to the application, but we will get to the first two. Number one, defining God's sovereign purposes. Defining God's sovereign purposes. Uh, Let me give you three words. And the words are right, ability, and desire. God's sovereignty in his right, ability, and desire. And desire. These are important three words. Why are they important? Let me lay something on each one of them. Number one is right. God has the right to do as he pleases. Turn with me quickly um, to Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 145. In verse 11, notice what he says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and shall talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures, it says, and endures for how long? It endures forever. And in that kingdom, he has an absolute right to do as he pleases. The psalmist also tells us that the Lord is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. This is important for us to understand. The second word, when we try to unfold it a bit, is the idea of ability. God's ability. God has the ability to act on what he pleases to do. His right to do. Not everyone has the right to act in a certain way. God does because he is the only savior. He is the only creator. 
but also God has the ability to act. Notice even as the psalmist says, we'll talk of your power. That is, a person may have a right to do something, perhaps, but they have no ability to bring it about. God has both sovereign right and also sovereign power. And that third word is a desire. God has a desire to do as he pleases. And we already noted, even in Isaiah, he will fulfill all my purposes, all my desires. God desires that we be saved. God desires that Christ would give his life. Christ, God desires that there would be a creation. God desires that you would have an abode with him forever. God desires that he would be glorified. This is his desire, and he will bring it about. Now, some people, when they think about um, the idea of sovereignty and even man's will, they are incorrect in two ways, Um, more than two, but I'll just give you two. One is um, fatalism, in fatalism. Um, That's an issue because when we think about fatalism, it's this idea that all events are determined by blind necessity. Blind necessity determines all events without any consideration of the person's individual personality at all. So life is sort of like a complex machine that's governed by the laws of physics. So it's just unfolding. Uh, There is not a sovereign God uh, that is controlling all things. And we reject fatalism for two reasons. First, because it's not understanding man's personality and his volition. And it surely isn't understanding, and it's even denying the creator of Scripture. No, we reject fatalism. God is in absolute control. And then there's another theory that we have to reject as well. It's called the contingency theory. And man has the ability to choose at the exclusion of a sovereign creature, of a sovereign creator. So the problem with that is we believe that man is influenced by his nature. Man will choose based on his nature. Man has a sinful nature, therefore man will make sinful choices in accord with that nature. And we, all of us, before we were, we were saved, what was our nature? Was our nature alive or dead? Dead. Uh, was our nature bent towards heaven or hell? Hell. And not just bent, it was by necessity, that was its orientation, that was its direction. And so man cannot choose the good when his will is bent towards the evil. It is made for the evil, so it requires divine intervention. It requires a God that will override. And when we look at the picture of Cyrus, you say, wait a minute, maybe it's just Cyrus wanted to choose good. He wanted the people of God to be returned to the land. No, God chose him as his anointed. And we will even see in how history unfolds, even Cyrus, when it came to him and his religion, that Cyrus wasn't necessarily a believer even in Yahweh. But Yahweh was a believer in glorifying himself, and he would use Cyrus for his divine purposes. And why is that important to think about? Because we understand that God is the maker of all things, and God will use people for his glory. Some people have asked me the question, um, what about a certain um, civil rights hero, and was he a believer or not? 
And I said, well, I don't believe that he is based on the things that he has written. Um, but there seemed to be good that came about his life and, and things that he brought about in our country. And I would say, yes, you're right. I think that God and his sovereignty can use men to bring about good results and they still not know him because he has the right over his creation. So we reject fatalism. No, we reject that altogether. We reject this sense of contingency because man is not self-determining. His will is bent towards evil. And we also reject it because if we don't reject that, then we don't accept God's foreknowledge. See, in God's foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge is not God looking to the annals of of time and realizing, oh, that's the decision that you're going to make, therefore I adjust history to you. Not at all. What sort of God would that be? Now, there's some people who have more degrees even than I do that hold to positions like that for the life of me. I don't understand how that happens. Do you know, Dr. Z? I don't know how it happens. Um, God's foreknowledge is he has foreordained all things. Because even our salvation, the basis is what? The foreknowledge of God. And foreknowledge is not God looking into the, t- the annals of time. And there it was, April 20th, 1983. Then in my dorm room at the University of Cincinnati, I would realize that I needed Christ. So then Christ now chooses me. No. It is before there is time, I am chosen. Amen. And now in time, the events of history sovereignly unfold and someone comes and witnesses to me and someone tells me about the faith. And this person begins a ministry on the campus to athletes and I hear about it and I go to a Bible study and then God in that moment that was already recorded, if you will, in eternity, my eyes are open and I see the truth. His sovereign purposes. What a beautiful thing. Because if not, surely man would think too much of himself, would he not? And this is why the scripture also tells us that we're saved by grace, what? Through faith, lest any man should do what? Boast. Boast in what? You've done nothing. Boast in your salvation? No. It was the sovereign hand of God. He is a God of foreknowledge. Sovereignty is also seen in several ways. We see sovereignty as a sense that is overarching. We see sovereignty in creation. We see sovereignty in salvation. We see sovereignty in that it's intentional. But let's look at some verses for those. Look with me at Psalm 103. So sovereignty, an overarching sense. God is absolutely sovereign. Psalm 103:19 says what? The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty. How does it rule? Over all. Absolute right, absolute ability, absolute desire to control my creation. His sovereignty rules over all. Look with me at, um, turn with me to First Chronicles. First Chronicles, if you will. First Chronicles, go back a bit. First Chronicles 19, and what does it say? Then that that can't be it, so it has to be Second Chronicles. (laughs) Some of those, you know, in the moment things here. (laughs) 
Okay, it's... Hmm. It's in the Bible, trust me. <laughs> I'm just reminded of my humanness, which is a sovereign act of God. Amen? Ah, because it knife. Hmm, 29. Because David, the Absalom, David, um, Solomon. Look at me at First Chronicles 28. All right. First Chronicles 28. Yeah, so he talks to the people at the temple and Yeah. Well, seven. I will okay, get putting in votes now. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> So wait a minute, we don't believe in contingency theory, which is <laughs> your vote so equal, right? <laughs> uh, beautiful, don't you love it? Okay, notice in verse 7, he says, I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. So God is making a promise. Notice verse 9. This is what I wanted to see. He says, As you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thought. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. So he gives them a charge based on what? I made a promise to your father. Now, if you would follow that, I will bless you. But if not, I reject you. Look at Revelation chapter 4. We see sovereignty in creation. Revelation 4, we see sovereignty in creation. Sovereignty in creation. And it says, notice the 24 elders fall down in verse 10, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did what? What did he create? All things because of your what? Will, they were created and exist. It is your will. Remember our words? Uh, we said what? What are our words? Right, ability, desire. You desired it, therefore you created it. You have the ability to create it because God created what? He said in the beginning was, well, that's true. <laughs> I love it. You guys are, <laughs> this is good. I love it. That's true as well. <laughs> In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, right? And he upholds all things by the word of his power. But it says, in the beginning, God did what? Created. Created. Amen. Out of nothing. So we also, with that, reject any sense of a big bang, do we not? Mm, I didn't hear that quite. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right. So God is... a. Sovereign over creation. Look with me at Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. Romans 11. God is sovereign in salvation. So it's overarching. He's sovereign in creation. He's sovereign in salvation. Romans 11.33, what does it say? Um, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who's known his mind? 
who is given to him that we should pay back? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And what does it say? Amen. Look at chapter 9 of Romans. Romans chapter 9. Here is sovereignty and salvation. And of course, each one of these is a series in itself. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy in whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion in whom I have compassion. What are our three words again? Right, ability, desire. I've selected you and not you. I've selected you and not you. I will have compassion on you and not you. Ah, should we not be joyous to be on the other side of that compassion? Amen. Because we realize it is not based on ourselves. It is based on the sovereign choice of God. Even as early, I talked about family members that I know that don't know the Lord. And I'm asking myself a question. I've asked it and I don't doubt it. I accept it. Um, it still causes consternation with me, if you will, that why me and not my brother? Why me and not my niece? Why me and not my, one of my uncles? A good man, a good man. Why is that? He's sovereign. And this is why Paul would say elsewhere, does not the potter have right over the clay? Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Sovereign. Praise the Lord that you are on the gracious side of sovereignty. God's sovereignty is intentional. Stay there in um, Romans, and we already looked at it, but in the, it's really verse 36, Romans 11, 36. Intentional, we might even say outcome, outcome. In the end, the outcome is this. It's simple but profound. It guides everything in Scripture, all that we do, it is the goal of salvation itself, Ephesians chapter 1, to him be the glory. You're to live for the glory of God, are you not? You've been purchased with a price, therefore live to the glory of God. Uh, we began the lesson talking about your purpose. Your purpose is to live for the glory of God. That's your calling in life. And if you can live for the glory of God, you may never be recognized. People may never know about you. But if you live for the glory of God, you can say, mission accomplished. Amen? I've accomplished my mission in life. God's sovereign design is that he would be glorified. And we live to the glory of God. And this is why the scripture tells us what? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to what? The glory of God. What a wonder it is to live to the glory of God. And I see right now, the next part of my lesson was to unfold God's sovereign use of Cyrus among the nations. And I have some very interesting details that I found looking at um, ancient history um, and biblical history and how God used Cyrus, but I'm not going to force it. I'm not. We'll come to that next week. Um. Yeah, my life is, is, is curious. You know, I, 
I look back to that moment in that dorm room, and I said to the Lord, Lord, take control of my life. That's all I said. There was no, quote, sinner's prayer. Um, and I'm not against someone's praying, because I think every, as J.C. Rao said, um, <clears throat> you can't be saved without prayer. Because he said every person had some prayer when they came to faith, did they not? Whether it was, save me, Lord. What was, God, I see them a sinner. Will you forgive me? You had some prayer. So it all begins with prayer. And my prayer was simply that, Lord, take control of my life. And uh, now I've known the Lord. Oh, my. <laughs> Ooh. Who said that? <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> no, you're right. Forty years. Forty years. And I've seen God's plan unfold. And my wife has said to me at times, she says, Carl, you seem to like things don't bother you. You have a lot of faith. I've seen the sovereign hand of God so many times. Why? And I think about the moments in life where when when I would, when I would, when I did doubt God. And I've never gone back and said, you know what? That was justified doubt. Have you? Have you ever gone back in your life and said, Lord, I doubted you in that moment of life. I didn't think that you were going to provide for me. I didn't know why this was happening to me. And now I look back and realize it was justified. I had right to doubt you, sovereign Lord. No, we can never say that. Most likely we look back in shame, don't we? How could I have doubted the Lord? Why would I question his love? Why would I question his control? He raises up a Persian king. And he says, he is my shepherd. He is my anointed. He will fulfill all my wills, he says. He conquers nations. And we're going to look next week. You remember, we, he says he's going to give nations as an inheritance to them. You'll see how he goes from nation to empire, conquering them. Before he came to Babylon, he conquered other empires before he came to Babylon, which was fulfilling God's word. If God, you can do that, why would I doubt you? And it's not even Cyrus at this point. Forget Cyrus. Forget Cyrus. Who is Cyrus? Who is Cyrus? That should not, let me say it this way. That should not be the turning point for you to say, now I trust. Because look, I look at the details of the life of Cyrus. Let me tell you what. The turning point for every believer to trust in the living God is to look to the cross. And if the cross isn't going to motivate you properly, Mm. and you can look to the cross and see the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life as a ransom for many. That's sovereignty at the apex. And why would I not trust you if you gave your only begotten son? Amen? Father, we thank you even for your graciousness and even how the lesson ended in a way that you knew would before time. Help us all to trust you more. You're a great and sovereign God. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen.